714. That's the number of home runs that Babe Ruth hit during his career, a record that most sports fans and writers believed would never be broken. But here's the sound of it shattering. There's a drive into left field. That ball is going, going, and out of here! It is one of the most famous swings in the history of baseball. The year was 1974. The batter was Henry Aaron, otherwise known as Hammerin' Hank. He would hold on to that new record for the next 27 years. But this isn't just a story about heroic athletic prowess. Hank Aaron is black, born in Alabama in the 1930s. And so the story of his home run record also contains the story of American racism. It's about segregation, humiliation, the persistent threat of violence, and ultimately about the era when those things began to change. On this episode, the story of how Hank Aaron helped create that change with his bat and his cleats and his quiet determination. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Hank Aaron was 13 years old when Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers and broke the color barrier in professional baseball. Suddenly, the world held more possibilities for a baseball-loving black kid in Alabama. But in the 1930s and 40s, they didn't have little leagues in African-American neighborhoods. No, they didn't. There was no little league baseball at all. My parents couldn't afford to buy a bat. They couldn't afford to buy a ball. And so, actually, we did everything we could in order to pretend like we were playing baseball. You know, we would take rags and wrap them up tight and throw to each other, you know. Or we would take pop tops like soda tops and throw and try to hit balls with a broomstick. We did anything that we could in order to pretend like we were playing baseball and like we were playing baseball in a big league camp. Hank Aaron spoke to reporter Barbara Harrison about his life for the Academy of Achievement in 2013. In the 1940s, your hometown of Mobile, Alabama was not a safe place for a black kid to pursue equality. Did you, were you aware of segregation? And if so, how did you feel about it? I don't know that I was aware of it, but I I was conscious of who I was. There was many days, many, many days. Of course, I grew up in the country. I actually grew up in a little place called Tolmanville, Alabama. I was born in a little place called down the bay, which was 
more in the city and my father moved us all out to the country built a little house out there with two bedrooms and uh, probably a half a roof Tolmanville is that how you say Tolmanville Tolmanville it's a little country town there were no roads I mean it was little just little 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 farm roads and I can remember many nights many nights uh, my brother and I would be out playing baseball just throwing the ball because we didn't have any lights. But in the dark of the night, she would tell both, all of us to come in the house. And I would say, for what? She said, just come in the house and get under the bed. I said, for what? She said, just get under the bed. And then by 10 minutes later, we would have the Ku Klux Klans coming through, intimidating, throwing fire bombs and things like that. And uh, that's what that's what really kind of set you all apart and said, just because your skin is a little different, then they were going to treat you a little different. How had you seen baseball? Where did you know about it? Uh, well, well, actually, I heard about it from the from sleeping in the bed at night because the Mobile Bears, which was a farm club of the Brooklyn Dodgers, were in Mobile, and I would hear this friend of mine. Well, when I say a friend of someone I knew, next door would have his radio on. And he would he had a radio on to the Mobile Bears, and I could listen to him. And that's how I knew about baseball. That's how I kept up with it. You know, I didn't didn't have enough money to go to the game, so I had to listen to it. <laughs> you could hear that crack of the bat, yeah. and the ball, and the crowd cheering. I could hear that. You know, I remember a player by the name of George Shotgun Shuba, who played a few years with the Brooklyn Dodgers. All of those play that was the Brooklyn Dodgers Double A team. And they used to take a lot of the players off of that team and bring them to the big leagues. And I remember that very well. The stadium where the Mobile Minor League team now plays, by the way, is called Henry Aaron Stadium. But back to our thread here. Hank Aaron also remembers the day when he was 14 that Jackie Robinson came to town with the Dodgers. Aaron skipped school to see his hero up close at a grocery store in Mobile. He was too scared to say anything, but he listened to Robinson talk about his experiences and tell the kids who were interested in playing pro ball that they would have to work very hard and not look for shortcuts. The message sunk in. So was there a moment when you suddenly realized, hey, I don't have to just dream of this. I can do it. I think I felt that way at one point in my life. You know, I felt like if, if given the opportunity, that was the most important thing. If given the opportunity, that I thought that I could play baseball. He was good at it, really good. By his teenage years, he was no longer playing with a rolled-up rag, but he was still hitting cross-handed. No one had taught him how to bat properly. Cross-handed means that I was doing everything backwards. That meant that I was taking my left hand, putting it on top of my right hand, and trying to swing this way instead of swinging this way. But nobody never taught me any different, and I was doing pretty well. <laughs> so I just continued to do things the wrong way. <laughs> Is there a wrong, wrong way or a right way? Yes, that was definitely <laughs> a wrong way. <laughs> you cannot, I don't think you can go very far by stacking your fan <laughs> this way, you know, because... Uh, the higher you get in baseball, the more pitchers going to be able to jam you with certain pitches. You know, you wouldn't be able to get around on pitches inside. 
The Dodgers held a tryout camp in Mobile for black players in 1951. Aaron's cross-handed batting style probably didn't help, but the real problem was that he only weighed about 110 pounds. Well, I was, you could say I was a little bit skinny. (laughs) They said, well, when I got to the camp to work out, they just brushed me aside, you know, and said, you come back later on. He was more motivated than disappointed by the experience, and that next winter, he got a contract with the Indianapolis Clowns, a team in the American Negro League. The Clowns had started out in the 1930s as a team of comic showmen, a sort of precursor to the Harlem Globetrotters. But by the time Henry Aaron joined the team, they were playing serious ball. Still, he was 18, and saying goodbye to his family wasn't so easy. I think my mother had some reservations about it, but my father wanted me to go, and he said, go and give it a try. He said, if you fail, come back. He said, I got some. I got a job for you. you know? <laughs> but my my mother was she she didn't she didn't want me to go. She she wanted me to stay home. I was I was more of a mother boy than anybody. How many kids were there in your? That family? was eight of us. Eight kids. She didn't want any of us leaving. She wanted all of us to be around. <laughs> were you frightened to leave home? Were you nervous when you got on that train? Tell me what you felt. I was frightened and nervous. <laughs> I don't really know. I really don't know how I made it. You know, I I I remember my oldest sister, who's no longer with us, and my mother carried me to the train. Well, when I say carry me, they 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 walked with me, walked with me to the train station, put me on the train, and I had a little bag about with one pair of pants, and my mother had fixed me two sandwiches, and I had I think it was two dollars in my pocket. And she told me this is all she had. And my sister told me, said that she kissed me and she said, just do the best you can, you know. Yeah. And so we got, I got on a train. Uh, yes, I was nervous, scared, and didn't know where I was going, really. I'd never been on a train before in my life. And I think we, that train carried me to almost to Durham, somewhere in tobacco country. I remember that. And I remember that I had to get off of that train and transfer to another one. And I had to ask five people where I needed to go because I didn't know where to go. But I remember I, I was, uh, to ask your question, I was really scared. At that point in time, only six of Major League's baseball teams were integrated. The Negro Leagues would soon be gone, but not yet. It was probably one of the greatest I said one of the greatest minor leagues that you could have, and I call it minor leagues because I came from there, Willie came from there, Ernie Banks came from there, Gene Baker came from there, and Jackie Robinson, Campanella, Don Nuke. So it was a it was a feeding ground, I would say, I'm, I'm, when you talk about uh, the Negro League. It was a feeding ground for the major leagues. I don't know that I would have been in the big leagues if I had not had the have had the experience of playing in the Negro League. Uh, some people say, "Well, what class of ball would you put it at?" And I would say that um, uh, the Negro League probably was, I would say, a high A ball. 
I learned an awful lot from playing in that league simply because of the fact I played with older players, players that knew how to play the game, and I and all of those things rubbed off on me. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how I did when the situation came about. Did it scare you, though, to think of uh, leaving an environment that you felt comfortable in, all black players, and moving into a situation that you did not know? Oh, yes, yes, it scared me. I didn't know what to expect. When I left the Negro League and went to Eau Claire to play with the Eau Claire Bears, I had absolutely no earthly idea where I was going, what I was going to do, where I was going to... I don't know. I, 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 didn't know, I didn't know how to accept it, really. The Eau Claire Bears were the farm club of the Milwaukee Braves. This was before the Braves moved to Atlanta. In Eau Claire, Hank Aaron says, he played baseball with white players for the very first time. But when I got there, Eau Claire, and put my uniform on, and got on the baseball field, and when I walked out and I got my first base hit, the fans kind of took to me, you know, really. And it was the greatest experience I ever had. You know, I said I played a, a half a year at Eau Claire and a full year at Jacksonville. I said I had more fun at Eau Claire than I had at Jacksonville. Was there one black face in the crowd as you looked out as they were cheering for you there? Didn't see a one. Didn't see a one. I don't know what happened. There was no, I don't think I ever, I, I think I only saw one black face in the whole city of Eau Claire. I, I don't know what happened. But they, but they loved you. But the fans, I got along with the fans well. In fact, I, uh, I, had, a, I had a family that always talked to me and said, Whenever you want to come by and have dinner, come by our house. And I used to go by there quite often and have dinner. Hank Aaron's life as a minor league player was quite modest. The Braves had paid $10,000 to sign him, but... It, it, you know, <laughs> and I didn't get one nickel of the signing bonus. Who got it? <laughs> I think Sid Pollock, who owned the, the, the um, Indianapolis Clowns at the time, got all that. We were signed. I was signed. I was under contract with him. And the bonus, whatever it was, 5000 10000 whatever it was, it was a bonus that each step that I went from Class A to Double A, that they would give him so much money, so much of the 10000 I think it was $10,000. And, and, but I didn't get anything. I didn't get one nickel. The only thing that I got out of the whole deal was a cardboard suitcase back there when they made cardboard suitcases. And I remember going to Eau Claire when it was raining and I got off the plane with my cardboard suitcase and I didn't have anything in my hand but a handle because it, it <laughs> all my did clothes was on. Did they give the white players any more than that? Oh, I don't think they, I don't think back then you didn't get bonuses. You know, they, they probably got a little more than black players, of course, no question. Aaron played so well in Eau Claire that he was unanimously voted the league's Rookie of the Year, so the Braves promoted him to their Class A team in Jacksonville, Florida. That year, with Aaron on deck, the team won the championship in the South Atlantic League, better known as the Sally League. Hank Aaron won the league's MVP award, but playing in the Jim Crow South was rough, It was the first year the Sally League was integrated, and on the night his team won the pennant, Hank Aaron and the other black players couldn't even attend the party. 
No, no, we didn't. None of us. We, we, you know, we were still playing in the South. It was, it was hard. It was hard. It was very, very hard. But it was typical a Southern city. I had problems all over the league, and I played there with Felix Mantia, who was another. He was a Puerto Rican, and another player named Horace Garner, who was much older than the two of us. And we never stayed at the hotel. We had to stay at private homes. Uh, we didn't stay at hotels on the road. We had to stay at private homes. So we didn't uh, we didn't enjoy the luxury of playing like some of the white players did. When we played in the South League, you know, the, the bus would drive to a, say like to to Montgomery, and they would let the white players off at the hotel and then they would take us to, we would have to go out, out off the bus and get the cab and find a cab to go to to the, the rooming house where we stayed at. How did you feel? I mean, can you remember what that felt like? I, I, I don't know how I felt, you know, really. It, I, you know, it, was, it was hurting, very degrading. It felt like you was not part of the team. Uh, it felt like uh, you was a second-class citizen. But it was a great, it was a great time for me. I led the league. I said I always tell people I led the league in everything but hotel accommodation. <laughs> but I, but I, but I had a great year. I had a great year. I did. I did lead the league in everything. Uh, Batting average, runs batting in, and so forth. It, it was a that was a stepping stone for me going from class A ball to the big leagues. In 1954, Aaron went to spring training with the Braves' major league team, but it was supposed to be just for training. I had had a great year in the minor leagues. I mean, a great season. Today, if a kid have that kind of year in the minor leagues, he would come up and sign a 15-year contract. I had a great year, but I knew back then that regardless of what kind of year that I had, if I had the greatest spring training, and I I did, I knew that I was going to be probably going back to the minor leagues. I was going to AAA because the Braves had made a very big trade. They had traded for Bobby Thompson. And Bobby Thompson was going to be a left fielder. You know, he was going to play left field, and I was not going to play. But Bobby Thompson broke his ankle in St. Petersburg. It seems bad form and a bad pun to call another player's injury a lucky break. And it also seems preposterous to suggest that Hank Aaron needed luck at all, given his talents. So let's just say fate rather than luck intervened. It was also maybe fate that Henry Aaron chose to sign with the Braves in the first place. He had come close to signing with the New York Giants instead, the team that Willie Mays had signed with a few years before. Barbara Harrison wanted to know why Aaron made the choice he did. Only because of dollars, you know, not big dollars, but I think it was $200 or $100 more that the Braves was giving me than, than than the Giants. Uh, we almost were teammates. And then, you know, uh, 
And yet I look back and I say, you know, I, I'm so thankful and grateful. I would have loved to have had a career with Willie, Willie Knob in the outfield, but playing in Milwaukee was the greatest experience I ever had in my life. I mean, really, it was so, it was so rewarding to me because when I got to the big leagues, I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, you know, bunting with runners on third base and running when I shouldn't have been running. Uh, and the fans never booed me, never, never once booed me. So I, I just am grateful that I had a chance to play at Milwaukee. Hank Aaron's first few years in Major League Baseball corresponded with important, tumultuous years in the modern civil rights movement the Supreme Court's ruling against school segregation in Brown versus Board of Education, the murder of Emmett Till, Rosa Parks' stance on a public bus leading to the year-long Montgomery bus boycott, the dispatch of federal troops to allow nine black children into Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. As the years went on and the movement grew, Hank Aaron says some prominent African-American baseball players tried to figure out what their role should be. We looked at it, and, and some some of us, including myself, wanted to take time out to go and, and be part of the march, or be part of whatever Dr. King and some of the other civil rights leaders were doing. And we talked it over, and we decided that the best thing to do is to, sit, to do it, continue to do baseball, because things were, you know, we were seeing little progress in baseball. They were a little bit more peaceful with us than they were with just the average black person in the, in the South. Uh, when I first started in Jacksonville, you know, blacks and white could not mingle together. And then at the end of the season, they were started to go together and shake hands and be able, because it was for one thing, and that's to try to win a championship. So all these things we we saw it was it was it was hurting when you look at uh, uh, TV and you see things like that and you're not part of it. But yet you feel like you and I mean you myself you were making progress as far as trying to help bring equality yourself. And you did. Yes. In 1957. It's a magical year for you and the Milwaukee Braves. You always dreamed of a moment like this, an 11th inning home run to win the pennant to beat the Cardinals. Your teammates carried you off the field. Here it comes. And there it goes. Hammer and Hank hits a home run, and this one is special. The Braves hit it, clinched the pennant. They came close before, but this is it. The end of years of frustration. There's a mob scene on the field, and why not? Victory didn't come easy, and it came late, so it's extra welcome. Next stop, the World Series. Here I was, a black kid that hit the home run and was carried off the field by white teammates on their shoulders. And yet, in Little Rock, a black kid was trying to go to school and had to be escorted by marshals into a school. And so that was the thing that was so ironic about that. It was it, The home run was great, but yet I felt like things had been good for me. But when I think about all of the other black players or other black people that are still down in the hole hollering for help, that until they come out, all of them come out of the hole and be able to have the playing field level 
then we are, none of us should be able to rejoice because things is not that good. You thought that when the Braves moved to Atlanta in 1965, I think it was, you would be on trial there and that you needed a decisive way to win over white people. Tell us if that move to Atlanta worked for you. You felt that you had a hand in bringing Atlanta maybe into the modern era? <laughs> well, that part, I don't, I don't know. But I, I think that um, um, uh, I felt like, you know, playing in Milwaukee for so long that this had never happened in the South where you had a professional team playing professional baseball. Uh, and yet I thought in order for the people to realize that I was as much part of the team as anybody else was to try to win them over by hitting home runs, by doing something that they would enjoy because right now the pennant was not part of that. And I felt like hitting home runs would, would do it. And it did. You know, I I don't know how many home runs I hit the first year. I think 35 or 40, somewhere thereabouts. But I did, and it won a lot of fans. You have said, to me, hitting is a matter of knowing where the ball was going to be and when. So what, what is the secret? I don't know that it was a secret. I just, I, I concentrate on everything I had to do. You know, baseball was, was my livelihood. I thought about it. I, I studied it. I practiced as much as I possibly could, where some players practice during the day, uh, during the game. I practiced all I would go out and do things that they would never dream about doing. And I could tell you what pitches, in what situation they want to throw Satan pitch to me. So I, I knew that. And I knew it because only because I studied the pitches a little bit more than just the average hitter did, you know. You said something about your eyesight too. You didn't even want to go to movies because you wanted to keep that eyesight perfect. I stayed in. I stayed. I didn't. I didn't go to the movies. I stayed in. The, especially if if I had a if I would travel from say from Milwaukee to Philadelphia, and that evening we had had an evening, a night game, and we would get in in the morning or something. I would never go out of the hotel until the game would start. You know because I just felt like I needed to stay and study and study and study and just keep my eyes rather than going out looking at bright sunshine wait until the night and it would be accustomed to being because I would be in the dark <laughs> where did this special insight I mean your observations where, where did it come from I don't know I, I think it just came from the good lord really I, I don't know I, my father always taught me if you want something bad enough you got to learn how to go out and do something special in order to accomplish and get it. And I just felt like, you know, that I had the ability to play baseball. That was that was given to me by God. But I had to apply my own intuition into it in order to make myself a little bit better. In order for me to do that, then I had to do some things that wouldn't ordinarily another player would not do. You know, I had to make sure that uh, if a pitcher was out there on the mound, 
that I knew exactly what his weakness was because he had already studied mine. So I felt like I need to be ahead of him at all times, you know, and that's what happened. Hank Aaron was already a star, but in Atlanta, he started to rack up more career milestones, including in 1970, his historic 3,000th hit. It was a single in the second game of a doubleheader against the Cincinnati Reds, and one of the most memorable things about it for Hammer and Hank was who was in the crowd that day. The person I admired so much, Stan Musial. Stan came, and now he didn't have to be there. Nobody paid his way. He paid his own way to come there. And he came in to see me get my 3,000 base hit. And that was the greatest, that was one of the greatest thrills I've had in my lifetime in baseball. That's what you remember about that 3,000th hit day? Yes. That he was sitting there. He was sitting, and he came out (laughs) on the field. He came out on the field and, and... Shook my hand, and and it was... Was he your hero? He was one of... Oh, yes, yes. Stan was always a very good... Not only one of my heroes, you know, along with Jackie Robinson and all the great... Some of the great black, black ball players, but Stan was right in the middle of them. You know, I mean, Stan was... He was... Um, I don't know what you call him. You know, I mean, he was just... He was Stan Musial. Stan he the was man. A, Stan the man. He was a great hitter. Great ball player, and I'm happy. He was, he was, he was such a wonderful person. You know, I mean, really, I mean, such a great ball player, but just a wonderful human being. And I'll tell you another story. And this is a true story. I tell this often. People, I don't know whether people believe it or not. My first All Star game in Milwaukee. Stan and I was on the bench along with Willie. We eventually won the game in extra innings. But I remember Stan Musial. So Stan hit the home run to, to win the pennant. I mean, to win that game. And I remember Stan walking up and down on the dugout. And he said, well, boys, he said, we don't get paid to play for extra. They don't pay us <laughs> enough money to play extra. He said, I might as well go up here and hit a home run. And sure enough, goes up and hit a home run out of the ballpark. Well, from what I hear, yes. he's not the only person who could predict home runs before they hit them. <laughs> I hear that you can do that as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pitcher Kurt Simmons once said, trying to sneak a fastball past Hank Aaron is like trying to sneak a sunrise past a rooster. In 1972, Aaron started to approach Babe Ruth's home run record, and across America, people started counting down, many with eager anticipation, but others with fear and malice. By 1973, with the gap closing between Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth, letters started to pour in at the stadium and at Hank Aaron's home. The team had to hire a secretary to open it all. Most of it was from adoring fans, but a lot of it was racist and threatening. The the hate mail started piling up. Even your, your children mm-hmm. received these threats. How did you cope with that? Were you angry, disgusted? Were you afraid? I was angry because of my kids, not myself. I was angry because they were not able to share in what I think was the greatest part of my life as far as baseball. I was angry because of that. I was angry because of the fact that my daughter, who was at Fisk University, wasn't able to enjoy a college life. She had to stay on campus for three years 
she had, no matter where she went, she had to be escorted out and to ballparks, wherever she wanted to go. Uh, and my kids I had in private school, I had two of my boys in private school here, they had to be backed off, you know. That was the only reason. I was used to, in some ways, used to the other thing, but they were not able to enjoy some of the lifestyle that I had built for them. Wow, that is, that's yes. terrible. I mean, yes. people were threatening right. to kill your kids. Right. I had, well, they had, I had, I had many, 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 many death threats, but uh, I couldn't open letters for a long time because they all had to be opened by the, either the FBI or somebody. You know, I, I couldn't open letters. Uh, I had to be escorted. In fact, just recently, you know, I, um, I went to a funeral. Calvin Watlow, who was the detective, who was the policeman with me for two years, passed away just recently, you know, and he and I got to be bosom buddies, you know, really. But he was... Um, uh, that was that was that was the hardest part. Why was there so much anger and hatred? Do you think? I don't know. You know, uh, that's two reasons you can look at it. You know, Babe Ruth was an icon. You know, really, and you can say he was a white icon. And the other thing I think that people had not readily accept the idea that he is a black player that is in the major leagues and he just got here. And when I say just got here five or six, ten years ago, Jackie Robinson just got here. And here he is challenging one of the most cherished records in all the sports, you know. So you can look at it two ways, you know. Uh, you can look at it saying a black player, would they have done a white player like that? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. But I think that uh, the reason that they did me like that is simply because of the fact that uh, we were still trying to make our marks. We were still, you know, black players were still trying to come in and make their mark in the major leagues, you know. And people were not, 90% of the people, I wouldn't say 90%, I would say 50% of the people were not accepting that, you know. And I was challenging a Babe Ruth record. Ooh, no. Sports Illustrated published an article in May of 1973 with the title, A Tortured Road to 715. In the article, the reporter wrote, Is this to be the year in which Aaron, at the age of 39, takes a moonwalk above one of the most hallowed individual records in American sport, the 714 home runs hit by George Herman Ruth? Or will it be remembered as the season in which Aaron, the most dignified of athletes, was besieged with hate mail and trapped by the cobwebs and goblins that lurk in baseball's attic. 1973 turned out not to be the year. At the end of the season, Hank Aaron was one home run short of Babe Ruth's record. By that time, he'd received so many death threats, he was afraid he might not live to see the next season. But he did, and on his first swing of 1974, Hank Aaron tied Babe Ruth's record. Four days later, on April 8th, the Braves faced the L.A. Dodgers at their home stadium in Atlanta. 54,000 people filled the stands, a record number. They held their collective breath as Hank Aaron in his number 44 jersey came to bat with Al Downing pitching for Los Angeles, also wearing the number 44. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I never had great luck against Al Downing. Al Downing was always very tough on me for some reason. You know, really, I remember him when he was with the Yankees. You know, through very hard, very, very hard, and had very good stuff. Uh, then they traded him. He hurt his arm somewhere. I don't know what, but he uh, he went over to the Dodgers, and I still never had very good luck with him. And, you know, he was pitching against against us that night and he had thrown me two well I walked me first time up the second time up he had me two balls I think two balls no strike and he threw me a he didn't it wasn't a slider he threw a screw something like a little screwball or something you know and he was trying to keep the ball away from me and what had happened was that I had creeped up on the plate just a little bit without the catchers knowing that the catcher, I don't know who it was, but I had creaked up on the plate a little bit. And the screwball that he threw me, that pitch hung on the outside part of the plate, but it hung right down the middle. And I was able to get my bat on it, you know, and that was it. <laughs> There's a drive into left field. That ball is going, going, and out of here. Henry Aaron has just tied Babe Ruth in the all-time home run parade. As Hank Aaron rounded the bases, two high school students jumped onto the field to run along with him. You can see it if you pull up the video. But his bodyguard, Calvin Wardlaw, later admitted that he came close to pulling out his double-barreled 38. Luckily, his gut told him that Aaron was not in danger, and he realized he could have ended up accidentally shooting Hank Aaron on the very night he became the first person to hit 715 home runs. Instead, at least for that night, all was jubilation and tremendous relief. It was the greatest moment. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. You know, I, I finally hit the home run, got at the bases, and when I got home that night, I got on my knees and prayed to the good Lord, you know, really thanked him for all of the things that he had sent me through. And because really, the two years was really, I, I had, I had really had, a, I had really had a bad time for two years, you know, really leading up to the home run. I had had some things that had been said, done, and, and it was, it was every day was something different, you know, really. For two years, I had a rough time. I mean, really, I really had, I really had a rough, rough, rough time. <laughs> Did this change everything when you hit that ball and ran those bases? It changed me that I wanted to try to get out of the game. You know, really, for the first time, I had felt like, you know, as Dr. King said, you know, I've been to the mountaintop. I've gotten far as I'm going to go, and I felt like there was nothing else for me to accomplish. You know, really, I had hit the home run broke the record, and that was it. You know, I didn't know anything else to do. I didn't know anything else to do, and, and lo and behold, I got this call at the end of the year from my good friend, Commissioner of Baseball, Bud Selig, and he wanted me to end my career in Milwaukee, which I was, I had no intentions of doing. And I had some very good friends of mine that came, flew here, had, we had dinner, and we talked about me spending two years more in Milwaukee, and I really didn't want to. And I told them at the dinner table in the presence of my wife, I said, now listen, I said, I want you to, all you guys to know that 
I'm not the same ball player I was when I left Milwaukee. You know, I can't steal a base. I don't play the outfield. I can't do certain things. I don't run as fast. I, I, I might think I'm running fast, but I'm not. I'm not doing things as fast as I used to. So you have to understand, well, you know, we just want you to come back and finish your career. And I said, okay. I said, because I was really thinking about it. Seriously, I probably would have. I was thinking about retiring, you know, really. Are you glad you didn't? I'm glad. I went back to Milwaukee and and had two years. wasn't good. It was not long ways from having the kind of year that I was used to having. Um, and but I sp- spent the last two years in Milwaukee, and the fans appreciated. At the end of those two years, Henry Lewis Aaron retired with 755 career home run hits and a long list of other impressive batting and slugging records, which add up to make him still one of the greatest baseball players of all time. He played 23 years in the big leagues, 23 years in the All-Star Games. Barbara Harrison asked him if, given his own life's journey, he has a message today for young people. He does. I think I would like for young people, especially African-American kids that's growing up, I want them to understand that that there is no shortcut in life. You know, I want them to understand that uh, if you're looking for shortcuts, then life is not going to treat you very well. You know, you got to take one step at a time. you got to do it right. I want them to understand that regardless to how bad things may be one day, that you can wake up tomorrow and things are going to be a whole lot better tomorrow. Uh, I would like for them to understand that. And I would like them to understand that that's the road that I take. I took. You know, my, my daddy insisted, my parents insisted upon me doing that, you know, rather than trying to make something quick happen, uh, you're not going to make it. It's a message similar to the one he heard Jackie Robinson deliver to kids in a grocery store in Mobile when playing professional baseball was still a distant dream for Hank Aaron. Then he was 13 and too shy to talk to his idol. But then everything changed. I got to know, I got to talk to Jackie many, many times before he passed away. In fact, um, uh, when I signed my first contract with the Braves, I remember playing an exhibition game against the Dodgers. In a little city in Memphis, uh, Jackie Camp and Don Newcomb were all sitting in the hotel in a room, and they were all playing cards. And I was in the corner watching them, just standing there watching with my mouth wide open, you know, trying to make myself realize and say, oh, God, am I here, you know and to watch these guys play. But to answer your question directly, uh, I I think after that, I remember him telling me that the one thing that you have to remember about baseball is that the only way that you're going to do something good for your team is that when you stand at home plate, make sure that you touch all the bases and get back to home plate. And that's when you're making a contribution to your team. You know, just be humble at what you're doing. You know, and try to give all you can and everything that you can to the game. And that's, I, 
that's what I've tried to do. I feel like I gave baseball everything that I had. And that's the way I did every single night that I played or every day that I played. Sometime I would go 0 for 4. Sometime I would go 4 for 4. Sometime I would have two home runs. Sometime I wouldn't have any. But I felt like it makes me, it just makes me feel great because of the fact that I didn't abuse what I had, what God gave me. When I walked off that field, no matter where it was or when, I could walk in my hotel room and look myself in the mirror and say, hey, I gave it everything this afternoon that I had. The incomparable Hank Aaron. After his retirement as a player, he became part of the management team of the Atlanta Braves and is today the team's senior vice president. He also created the Chasing the Dream Foundation to help disadvantaged kids reach their goals. And he was awarded the 2002 Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush. Henry Aaron still speaks out on issues of justice and works to level the proverbial playing field. Television journalist Barbara Harrison spoke with Mr. Aaron in 2013 for the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. What It Takes is funded with the generous support of the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation, Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.